Matthew chapter 11 verse 2. Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto them, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. I want to talk tonight about the making of a disciple. And if we really become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, we have to make up our minds to refuse to be offended. God bless you. You can be seated. Now I want to first say, uh, please do not be defensive about me talking about offense. My objective is not to be offensive about offense. And we need a spiritual defense against the spirit of offense that caused many people to stumble out of the way. Words are very important. They really matter. And there is a difference sometimes between the way we would use a word in our English vernacular than what the Bible means when it uses that same word. In the Bible, the most common use of the word offense in the context that I'll use it in tonight uh, means to, to stumble or to cause to stumble, to fall out of the way. In some passages, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, the Hebrew word, the Greek words, it can mean some type of a sin or a crime or to commit an offense against the nature and law of God. The word that is in this passage tonight and the passages that I'll use uh, comes from a Greek word, scandalon, or like a scandal, but it doesn't seem to be uh, that connection. But it's like the movable stick on a trap that would cause the snare to entrap someone, an impediment, or as Isaiah would talk about, a rock of offense, something that people would actually stumble over walking down a path and you trip over an object in the path and you fall. That's the idea behind this word offense. Now in the English language, the Webster Dictionary, and I'm using this for a reason, to offend is to cause hurt feelings or deep resentment. To offend not even need imply to an intentional hurting but it may indicate merely a violation of the victim's sense of what is proper or fitting. The Oxford Dictionary says, to cause to be upset or to hurt the feelings of someone, especially by rude or showing a lack of respect, rude behavior or showing a lack of respect. So there are perspectives on being offended, and we should think about this. These, defi these definitions say that if you are offended or if I offend you, that I have caused you hurt feelings or I have caused you deep resentment. If you offend me, then you have caused me to be upset or hurt my feelings by being rude or showing a lack 
of respect. I've learned that people can be offended by intentional words or actions or they can be offended by something that is unintentional. But motives matter, but an accidental shooting is still a shooting. If you offend someone accidentally, they're offended just the same even though it was not, uh, it had no malintent with it. Now, the focus of these definitions in modern dictionaries is on the person causing the offense. You offended someone. And the Bible says that if you do not offend in word, James 3 and 2, that you are a perfect person if you do not offend in word. Now, I've learned to say this, and maybe I don't always say this, but I've learned to try to own my own feelings. Instead of saying, you hurt my feelings, to say my feelings were hurt. Instead of saying you did something to me, talk about how I perceived what was said or done. Regardless of the motive of the offender, it seems to me to be healthier to own your own response or reaction rather than to blame the offender or the perceived offender. Now I've had this message on my list of things to teach and preach for quite a while. And you may remember on Sunday in my message, I talked about the woman of Canaan, the Syrophoenician woman who refused to be offended. I told you that these two messages are connected in their themes. Now I know that there are times when a person intentionally hurts you. They stomp on your foot. They steal your money. And maybe that's quite clear that there is an obvious intended offense. If you've never had your feelings hurt, you are a robot. And if you have, you're probably a human being. In our culture, there are a lot of offended people right now. The offended are those who are offended on behalf of other people, are those who are acting as if they're offended, who are canceling and fighting back, end up creating more offense. You know, the Bible said that a soft answer turns away wrath. There's a Christian response, a biblical response to everything that happens to us in life. And to offense, there certainly is. We live in a victimhood culture where being offended creates leverage against those who are allegedly or realistically offending you. And when our feelings are hurt, I told you Sunday, hurting people tend to hurt other people. When we are offended, we have a choice on how we react or respond to that stimulus of offense that comes to us, whether it was intentional or unintentional. Now, I know our emotions are very powerful. We feel, right? We do feel. But reason and rational thinking seems to be in short supply when we get offended, when we get our feelings hurt. We respond out of that hurt. We respond out of emotion instead of responding rationally. My message on Sunday about the healing of the cross, uh, I felt for several weeks to talk about the potential for the health of relationships that God can bring any two parties back together again if they were, are willing to meet at the cross. Amen? 
Because it is at the cross that I was forgiven. It is at the cross where I have the power to forgive. And I know that if I do not forgive those who have wronged me, that my Father which is in heaven will not forgive me. So it's pretty heavy stuff. Now, I want you to think about our culture, the culture that we're in of offense, of hurt, and people that get hurt, you, me, other people, friends of yours, family members. But I said that we have a choice in how we react or respond. And I said that because we have a Bible. Through the years, I've often said, you know, I don't always have the right attitude. But I I have a Bible, so I always know what the right attitude should be. The danger is when I excuse myself for holding on to an attitude or behavior that the Bible clearly teaches is wrong. And if you know to do good and you don't do it, it's just a sin. So because I have a Bible, I have to wrestle my flesh and my will down to the altar, to the cross, and ask God to help me bring my emotions in line with reason. As Christians, our citizenship is in heaven. Amen? We do not denounce our national citizenship. We do not denounce our cultural heritage. But we identify most clearly as Christians. And I talked about this on Sunday. So if you were not here, you might want to go back, watch or listen to that message. So because I am a Christian first, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ first, above everything else. That means that the Bible, God's Word, is the highest authority in my life. There's nothing that supersedes God's authority through His Word in my life. And we obey civil laws as citizens of the United States of America as long as they do not conflict with biblical laws. And we also know, this is not really in my message, but crossed my mind today, that just because something becomes legal in our country does not mean it is moral and does not mean it is biblical. There is a higher law by which we live. It is called the Bible. It is God's Word. It is the most clear expression of God's mind and God's nature. So we have emotions, feelings, hurts and struggles, but we do not allow them to rule over our reason. But we align ourselves to God's Word and submit to His sovereignty in our lives. That's what we must do. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. Amen. And now we belong to Jesus Christ. All we have is the choice to follow Him or deny Him. But if I choose to follow Him, I now surrender all of my rights to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what discipleship is. Now I know, boy, you know, I'm going to sound like an evangelist right now. I felt that pushback. I'm not getting ready to play the pastor card on you. I'm pulling the Jesus card on you. Pulling the Bible card on you. I can say that I'm a follower of Jesus or I am not. But if I say I follow Him, then I am not my own. And I really don't have a choice. After that choice, I have no other choice in how I live except to obey His Word. Amen. 
Oh, I know you're enjoying this right now. I can just feel it. So the Bible is very clear about how we, how we should respond to those who intentionally hurt or offend us or in the Bible to persecute us. First of all, Matthew 5, the Bible said that you've heard it said in the law that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and this way you'll be like your heavenly Father who lets His sunlight be on the evil and on the good and He lets it rain on the just and on the unjust. He's just good to everybody. Amen. And Jesus said, if you love only those who love you, what reward is there in that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your enemies, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect in His forgiveness and love prayer. Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, New Living Translation. So we're to pray for those who offend us, who persecute us, who hurt us. We're also to forgive those who offend us. Jesus spoke about this numerous places, but Mark 11.24, a verse about prayer, but then Jesus said, when you stand praying, forgive. And if you have ought against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive your, you, your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. And then I want to show you this verse. It kind of, kind of summarizes a lot of other verses. Luke 6.35 But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and you shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you shall be forgiven. There are two examples I'll just drive by briefly. But Jesus on the cross, Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now you've heard me say in the past few weeks that Romans were experts in crucifixion. They knew exactly what they were doing. The Jewish leaders, the Jewish people, who said, let his blood be on us and upon our children. They knew exactly the actions, the words, the motives of their heart. But Jesus somehow saw beneath that to pray for forgiveness for those who were taking, well, trying to take his life. He laid it down of himself. Stephen in Acts chapter 7, while he is being stoned to death, his dying words are, lay not this sin to their charge. And after that, he fell asleep and died. Now, there is a verse that I love that kind of is an all-encompassing verse. Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Now, that's in the Bible even when I don't like it. And the word offend in the Hebrew, Old Testament Hebrew, New Testament Greek for the most part, right? 
is, is the same word to stumble. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing will cause them to stumble out of the way, and the implication is to be lost, to go to hell. Now, this great peace comes from loving God's law. And loving God's law means living by God's law. And this great peace comes from knowing that whatever happens in your life, that ultimately God is above all, He works through all, and He is in you all. Not really a part of my message tonight, but I was thinking about uh, just before church, Romans 8, when the Bible talks, we are counted as sheep to the slaughter, we are killed all the day long, that sounds like they're victims, right? But the Bible said, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. So if we trust God's words, great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing will cause them to stumble out of the way and be lost. And in nothing am I ever truly a victim. Now, I'll pause to say that there's abuses, there's wrongs, there's crimes, there's hatred, there's all kinds of things that come against you. But all of those things happen to our brothers and sisters in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and all around the world. But you can choose rather that you're going to be a victim or you're going to be a victor, that you're going to rise above that and you're going to say that in Jesus Christ there is power, there's grace, there's forgiveness, there's healing, and ultimately, when all else fails, there is heaven. Amen. Nothing shall cause him to stumble out of the way. Amen. It was right here in my study of this passage that I remembered a song. I remember who sang it when I heard it, but it was written by James Cleveland. And it goes like this, well, I've been lied on, cheated, talked about, mistreated. I've been used, scorned, talked about, sure as you're born. I've been up, down, almost level to the ground. But long as I've got King Jesus, I don't need nobody else. Now, I know we need everybody else, right? But I'm just telling you, somebody was pretty down when they wrote that song. <laughs> Somebody was having a bad day, lied on, cheated, talked about, mistreated. But finally, you know, kind of like Habakkuk did, they dug their way out of depression to say, yet I will worship God, right? Being a disciple of Jesus Christ means bearing the offense of the cross. Now, ultimately, this is, this is what really matters. The offense of the cross is... Dying to myself, self-will, sin, taking up my cross daily and following Jesus Christ. And on the face of it, you know, we should not make a habit of trying to be offensive to people, hurting anyone's feelings and, you know, rough and crude. But I read one time about churches that are user-friendly churches, which we want to be. But, but he said, this was not an apostolic person, but we cannot, nothing can buffer the offense of the cross. No matter how nice you want to say cross, is still blood, suffering, death. You just say cross in your most pleasant voice 
and a cross is still a place of death. Amen? It is, it is a starting point, not the ending point of discipleship. I've really never thought of that before till just that moment when I said it. Take up your cross and follow me. You would think the ultimate act of discipleship is taking up your cross. That's just where discipleship starts. And following him to where the, he went with his cross was to the place of death. So the cross ultimately is offensive. It's offensive to my self-will because it tells me that I must deny myself. The cross offends my self-righteousness telling me that I am not righteous in myself, that I am only righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross. The cross offends my plans for my life and tells me that I've got to take up my cross and follow Jesus, that it is not my will, but His will be done. And that is quite offensive. And while offending, as I said, should not be a pastime or a hobby in the church, the cross is an offensive thing. Now, when we face offense, when we are hurt by offensive words and actions, we have to take the appropriate action to reconcile where we can. And Matthew 18 tells us about this. I'm not going to get into this passage tonight. But you go to that person one-on-one. -on -one. If they refuse to respond, two or three witnesses. And if they fail to respond, bring it to the church finally, but not at the beginning. That's what you do at the end. Ultimately, though, we have to make up our mind that no matter what happens in life, I am not going to allow it. Now, I want to make a differentiation between having your feelings hurt and losing your soul. Because there's too much in the Bible about being offended, about offense. But today, I'm not really talking so much about personal offenses in your life from person to person although it plays out like that. I'm talking about the offense of the Word of God to us, of the will of God in our lives, and what it means to really follow Him. We have to make up our minds that no matter what happens, I'm not going to allow it to cause me to stumble off the path, to trip up and not be saved in the end. But there are times when not being offended is not easy. And John the Baptist learned this firsthand. John was the forerunner of Jesus Christ, a great prophet of God. He was the cousin of Jesus who introduced him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John was an unselfish man who was willing to lose all of his disciples for them to follow Jesus Christ. He advanced the ministry of Jesus. It made his joy full when Jesus was more successful than he was. But now, John is in prison. He's in prison because he preached the message of repentance and right living, and Herod has thrown him in jail. Herod really doesn't know what to do with John at this point. Just keeping him out of the public eye is a good first step. And it is obvious that John is struggling with his circumstances, and he is struggling with his expectations. He's allowed to have visitors in prison. His disciples can come see him. And one day he asked two of his disciples to go take a question to Jesus. So from prison, John sends two disciples 
to go ask Jesus a question. Matthew 11, 2. Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto them, this is what you're going to ask Jesus, art thou he that should come or do we look for another? Now that's a perplexing question for the man who introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world to ask. John had been fearless in his stand for sin. But John, like many of the other disciples of Jesus and the Jews of Jesus' day, they had an expectation of the ministry of Jesus. They saw how it was going to happen. The Messiah would come. He would lead us in an insurrection over the Roman government. We would throw off Roman rule. We would regain our independence. We would be free. Remember the Jews said to Jesus, we're Abraham's children. We have never been in bondage to any man. Which was a lie, right? Over and over. So here's John. He's in jail. And he starts having real questions. Jesus talked about bringing deliverance to the captives. John was in prison. Deliverance sounded like a great idea at that moment. And for all the explanations that I've read about why John would send these messengers with these questions, with this question, all kinds of explanations that tried to say John didn't really mean what John asked, John asked this question through his disciples of Jesus Christ. Look, you're not really living up to my expectations of what you were supposed to do. I'm sitting here in jail when I should be sitting on a throne with you and this is not how I thought this was going to go. So are you the one that we're looking for? Are we supposed to hang around and look for someone else? That's a pretty tough question. Languishing in prison. Jesus has not delivered him. So the question is very real. John's a flawless, faithful prophet of God proven himself loyal to Jesus Christ, now this does not make any sense at all. And in the context of this passage that I'm reading from and teaching from tonight, this is where we sometimes are. We follow Jesus. We're all excited about Jesus. Then things start going in a different way than we expected. And we get offended. I didn't know this was going to happen. Why didn't you tell me that there was sickness and pain and heartache and prison and persecution and disappointment? Disappointment, And why didn't you tell me it was going to be like this when I took up my cross to follow you? If you're not careful, you can stumble over your unfulfilled or unmet expectations. For John, the wicked are prospering the bad guys are winning and God is silent. John is sitting in prison facing this uncertain future and his unmet expectations are messing with him. So what does Jesus do? John 11, 4. Excuse me, Matthew 11, 4. He said, I want you to go back and I want you to tell John something. Now when you cross-reference this with Luke, 
Luke says, in that very hour, while the disciples of John were with Jesus, he started working miracles. Tell John what you've seen and you hear. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. Luke 7, 21 is where Luke says that same hour. So in the presence of John's disciples, Jesus works all of these miracles and He is fulfilling what Isaiah 61 prophesied about Jesus, about what the Messiah would do and what Jesus said has been fulfilled in their ears in Luke 4.18. Let's look at that verse. Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And the Bible said, Jesus closed the book, gave it to the minister, and he sat down. And he said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And it was that day and in the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus wants John to know through his disciples all the wonderful things that are happening. But when you read Isaiah 61 and you compare it with Luke 4, you find out that there is a phrase missing in Luke 4 that Jesus intentionally left out and closed the book. Isaiah 61.1 The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus stopped there. The next phrase says, and the day of vengeance of our God. John the Baptist did not know Luke 4.18. He knew Isaiah 61. In his mind, the Messiah was supposed to come and execute vengeance on all the bad guys in their day. And it's not happening. He's in prison. And he doesn't understand what in the world is going on. But God knows what he is doing. God knows what he is deleted from the words of Jesus in Luke 4.18. What John the Baptist doesn't know. What none of the disciples of Jesus could fully comprehend. What the Jews were blinded to. Is that there was a gap between those two phrases of over 2,000 years. It is called the church dispensation. And John's in prison. And he's waiting for that next phrase of Isaiah 61 to take place. So the prison doors would open, Herod would be dethroned, Rome would be overthrown. He's still in prison. And he will not be delivered. He will be beheaded as a faithful prophet of God. And Jesus heals all these people and tells his disciples, go back and tell John everything you just saw, that I am who the Bible says that I am. And then he said, I want you to tell John one more thing. 
and blessed is he. Whosoever is not offended in me. Years ago when I was a very young preacher, I preached a message. Blessed is he who is not offended in the way I run my business. Not Daryl John's, in the way God runs his business. It's like Simon Peter saying to Jesus about John. Jesus just prophesied that Simon Peter was going to lay down his life. He would be crucified upside down, history says, for the cause of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, when you were young, you you went wherever you went. When you're old, they're going to take you a place you don't want to go. So Simon Peter, you're going to die like this. That's what Jesus prophesied. And Simon Peter looked over at John and asked Jesus, what about him? And Jesus said, what is it to you? If he should tarry till I come again, you follow me. It reminds me of the words that Jesus sent back to John, this precious man who has a question. Blessed is he who was not offended in me. Blessed, one translation said the NASB, who keeps from stumbling over me. You may remember that Isaiah 8 spoke about the Jewish people, that Jesus would be a stone of stumbling. He would be a rock of offense for the house of Israel, that they would stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Paul referred back to that prophecy in Romans chapter 9. The apostle Peter referred back to that prophecy of Isaiah 8 in 1 Peter chapter 2. They both referred back to that because it was integral to living for God. That if we live for the Lord, offenses will come. Now I know what Jesus said, woe unto them by whom the offenses come. God will take care of those people who offend us. But I'm talking tonight more about being a disciple of Jesus Christ. When our expectations are not met, when life does not go the way we think it should, when God does not answer our prayers the way we ask them, and we wonder what in the world is going wrong. And Jesus would say to us what he said to John the Baptist, I am who I said I was. And what you need to know, John, is the people who are blessed are the ones who are not offended in me. This is a lot easier to teach than it is to live. There's sometimes things that we overlook, sometimes intentionally. John the Baptist knew Isaiah 53 about the suffering Savior. He said, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. I preached on Sunday that Simon Peter somehow forgot what he preached on Acts chapter 2. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh that had been prophesied by Joel. He wasn't thinking about that when the Lord said, go to Cornelius' house. Like, whoa, wait, not me. I'm a Jew. That's a Gentile. There's a middle wall of partition there. John knew all this. But I I don't want to be too hard on John the Baptist, right? He's the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Never a man born of woman like him. Told the truth about Jesus. Never worked a miracle. But Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 26, 31 on the screens. 
Then saith Jesus unto them. This is, this is the night of his betrayal, okay? Then Jesus, saith Jesus unto them, all of you shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. And Peter said, not me. And the other disciples chimed in. According to Matthew 26, they all said that they would not do that. But when Jesus was arrested in the garden of Gethsemane, they all forsook him and fled. They all stumbled over something that they were not ready for. He had told them, he taught them from, that, from this time, Matthew 16, he told them that he would be crucified and died. But somehow in their mind, they didn't expect it. They didn't comprehend it. Just like John is in prison and he cannot reason what is happening. Matthew eleven six, And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. It's amazing to me about this story. Jesus sends the disciples of John back to him. They leave. And then he turns to the multitudes and he starts bragging on John. What did you go out to see? A reed shaking in the wind? A man living in a palace somewhere? He's a prophet. He's more. He brags on John. John never hears those words on earth. And like John, when you've done well, lived well, died without hearing those words. We really need to remember that what matters most is that we hear those words at the judgment seat of Christ when he says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joys of my Lord. The making of a disciple of Jesus Christ means refusing to be offended. And I really am not talking about it in a moment because I think that would be unrealistic, right? But how long? When you're looking for an exclamation point in life and you get a question mark, refuse to be offended. When the reality of your life does not measure up to your expectations, refuse to be offended. When you've been faithful but feel forgotten, refuse to be offended. When you're mistreated, manipulated, maligned by other people, even people who are brothers and sisters in Christ, just make up your mind that you're going to struggle through the hurt and the feeling to not stumble out of the way and be lost. You have to refuse to be offended. I'm not saying tonight that you should be impervious to or incapable of being hurt. But you have to refuse to let it throw you forever. A story just came to my mind, and I, I hope it's okay to tell this. My brother-in-law, Ron Cooper, was an amazing man of God. His dad, Olin, 
was in church many years ago, Olin and Margie Cooper. They lived about a mile from us. We went to the same church together. But Olin got offended and was backslidden away from God for many years. They're living outside of Gainesville, Florida. And one day, Brother Jeff Arnold felt led of the Lord to go to Olin's house. That's where they would go to church. Margie was faithful. I don't know how much Olin went. Brother Arnold in his pretty uncouth, direct way had a conversation with Olin about Olin's hurt, Olin's offense, Olin being backslidden. About he was going to go to hell because he allowed that to cause him to be away from God so long. Somehow that day it turned his heart. And he came back to God. And he died saved because he refused to die offended. 